This is the Clinical Takeaway podcast from HealthEd, where we interview leading medical experts on important topics that can positively change the way you practice. Here's your host, GP and medical educator, Dr. David Lim. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthed.com.au. Getting the diagnosis right in migraines is the first step toward offering real help to your patients. Associate Professor Richard Stark takes us through diagnosis and offers us a clear and structured approach in treating migraines, including migraine prophylaxis using injectables. Uh, Professor Stark, tell us about yourself. Oh, thanks, David. I, I'm a neurologist. I've been in practice uh, for a long time now. I work at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne uh, and also in private practice. Uh, and a very large part of my private practice is looking after people with difficult headache. And today's topic really is about migraine. And a common question that some GPs may get from their patients is, is a migraine more than a headache? Now, Richard, it's over to you uh, to tell us about migraines and headaches. Sure. Well, I I mean, I think there are a number of layers to answering that. I mean, from the purely medical technical point of view, migraine is defined by its features. So it is typically a headache. It's usually episodic. It's associated with things like light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, nausea, maybe vomiting. It may be unilateral, but maybe bilateral. It is often throbbing. It's often made worse by exertion. So these are the sorts of things that go to making the definition of migraine. So clearly someone who comes in with headache and no other features at all doesn't meet that definition. Obviously, from the patient's point of view, they want to have a diagnosis that's going to lead to specific treatment. I guess from the GP's point of view, they are keen to be sure that the diagnosis is accurate and that they're not missing any sinister underlying condition. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, the, I, I guess the focus is a little bit different from the two points of view. I guess the one thing I would say about it is that migraine is certainly underdiagnosed rather than overdiagnosed. And it's a diagnosis that we really are very keen to make and certainly not to miss because we do have a lot of resources for treating migraine. We've got a lot of very effective treatments and the alternative diagnoses, things like tension type headache, we really don't have so many effective treatments. So to tell someone that they've got tension type headache and nothing much can be done is obviously not doing the patient a great service. Now, that's a very important uh, distinction you've made from both uh, the patient's point of view and the GP's. Quite rightly, we don't want a wrong diagnosis, nor do we need to miss something nasty. So why don't we take it from the GP's perspective, Richard, and and, and just introduce a gentleman who, say, 
37 years of age, who presents with these sorts of symptoms that you can say, look, that looks very much like a migraine. So how do we confirm it? How do we exclude nasties? And where do we go? Sure. So look, I, I think the important thing is the history. You'd be interested to know how long this has been going on. Mm -hmm. Someone who's had recurrent attacks since their teenage years, and the pattern has been stable over that time. That's very typical of, of migraine. Someone who's been perfectly well until they were 36 years old, mm -hmm. and then in the last six months has developed increasingly severe headaches, could still be migraine, but you would be very anxious that it might be something else. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think it's, you know the time course is really important. Obviously, you are looking to see whether there are atypical features. So um, we haven't mentioned it yet, but patients with migraine may get aura symptoms, so they can get visual disturbances and so on. Most doctors are aware of the typical visual aura with this evolving scintillating scotoma that moves gradually over visual field over a period of maybe 20 minutes or so. But someone who describes different neurological symptoms associated with their headache, you would again be anxious about calling those typical aura and you'd be wondering about another cause. I mean, for people who, who are interested in, in methods for, I guess, excluding sinister causes, the, there are a number of mnemonics that people use. One that's uh, a favourite among some neurologists is a mnemonic called SNOOP, uh, which is, I won't go through each of the individual terms, but it, it's talking about things like the onset, whether it's new onset, which is the, the N, whether the, there are headaches that are orthostatic, such as, you know, lie down, stand up, that makes a difference, whether there's things like papilledema, neurological signs, systemic changes such as fever and so on. So, you know, there's a range of things that would make you suspicious that this is not pure migraine. I, I think some of those features you mentioned might be worthwhile expanding a little on. When you mentioned the orthostatic symptoms, what were you really meaning? Oh, well, look, one of the things that can be really quite tricky uh, is patients who uh, develop what's called a, a CSF leak. Uh, so patients uh, can present with headaches that are present only when they're standing up and are relieved almost completely when they lie down. And uh, that can be due to a CSF leak resulting in low intracranial pressure. It, it's not a very common condition, but it's something that is easily overlooked. Uh, and certainly patients with this condition can be regarded as having migraine for quite a long time before the diagnosis comes to light. On the other hand, if the headache is worse when you lie down, that may raise the question of raised intracranial pressure and things like brain tumours. So that's, I guess, something that headache specialists are pretty tuned into because patients that have been through the hoops have been investigated and seen by doctors and are still being treated as migraine. It is one of the things that, I guess, can be diagnosed relatively late in their course. There are other things that are much more obvious uh, early in the course of and, you know, for example, someone with a very sudden onset headache, uh, you know, you would be concerned about subarachnoid hemorrhage. So anyone that's got instantaneous onset headache, you're very reluctant to call that migraine until all the appropriate investigations have been done. What about the um, presence of even transient neurological symptoms? Sort of um, 
weakness or uh, paresthesia? So I guess it, it's really helpful to know what happens during typical migraine aura, uh, and that enables you to say whether someone's transient symptoms might be due to migraine aura. Mm -hmm. So one of the important things to realize is that we probably when I was growing up, people talked about migraine aura as being due to spasm of intracranial vessels. That's almost certainly not true. That's yeah. not the cause of migraine aura. It's caused by a process called uh, spreading depression. And basically what happens is that something triggers an area in the cortex to basically alter its function. And that then triggers the next area, which triggers the next area. And one gets this spreading wave of, of altered activity. The, the area that's most sensitive to this is the visual cortex. So that's why most of the migraine aura is visual, but you can get it in other areas of the brain as well. Mm -hmm. And the, the characteristic feature of it is that it progresses over a period of 15 or 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, we're, we're all aware of this, you know, the typical visual migranous aura starts with this tiny area uh, of uh, distorted vision in the center of vision usually, and then that just becomes larger, becomes larger, spreads towards the periphery, develops a shimmering edge to it with zigzags, and eventually goes to the periphery of vision. And all of that evolves bit by bit over maybe 20 minutes. That's so characteristic that everyone's going to diagnose that correctly, one would hope. But sensory auras do occur and can be much more tricky. And again, the clue is that they evolve over 15 or 20 minutes. Mm. So if you get someone who starts with tingling in the thumb, and then within five minutes, it's spread to the rest of the hand, and another five minutes, it's gone up to the forearm, another five minutes, it's gone to the shoulder and then to the face, right. all up over 20 minutes, very suggestive of migraine aura, especially if it's associated with headache. Mm -hmm. If it came on instantly uh, and was there in all those places at once, you'd think of a TIA. If it evolved more quickly, maybe over a minute, you might think it was a focal sensory seizure. So again, the detail gives you a clue as to what's going on. So the, the, there are, I mean, it, it certainly is worrying if you see someone who presents with sensory symptoms as the accompaniment of headache, and you would you know, almost always want to be checking for underlying structural pathology, doing scans, MRI scans, and so on. But it certainly can be due to migraine aura. So what I'm hearing from you is that the history is really important in, you know, a patient where the headaches have been there for many years, has the same onset, same sorts of progression, and you're feeling comfortable that it's over 20 minutes and it's an increasing progression. Patient's familiar with it and you're comfortable. And for those with that odd sensory migraines, uh, the auras, um, they can still be migraines, but I really hear what you're saying about the time frame, instantaneous over wide areas, possible TIAs. If it happens within a minute, think of a uh, sensory epilepsy. But um, those are very helpful clues, Richard. Yeah, well, and, and you know, we, we do see these people come in and, and you know, the last thing you want to do is to treat someone with migraine uh, as migraine when they've got a, you know, a more serious condition to be dealing with. Now, what are the common things that sets off uh, a migraine episode? So 
patients will often be very focused on this, on their triggers. Uh, and there are a number of important triggers that people will talk about. Uh, it's often things like changes in sleep pattern, uh, you know, being overtired or even sleeping in, changes in stress levels, hormonal factors, obviously, uh, in women. There are many women whose migraine is very much worse at period time than at other times uh, during the month. There are some dietary factors. Uh, there are a whole range of things. In fact, you know, the, the number of triggers that you can think of is, is enormous, and, and uh, it, it's sort of hard to put them together as a conceptual whole. Mm. And really, I think the, the way that I think about it is that if you're susceptible to migraine, there might be various ways of stirring up the migraine process, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, it will be a little bit different from person to person. I think one group of triggers that I think really can be quite important and quite confusing is that patients with migraine may get pain around the head and neck. That can work in both ways. Part of the migraine attack can include neck pain. So many patients who do get migraine do get neck pain as part of it. But equally, if you're prone to migraine and you get something wrong with your neck, uh, that can trigger migraine. So, for example, we see patients who have had a very occasional migraine throughout their life. They get into in a car accident, get a whiplash injury. The neck is painful, and as the neck is sore, it triggers migraines, and their migraines become much more frequent. So uh, I think there's a range of different triggers, uh, and it makes sense to try and address those triggers if possible, sometimes easier than others. Obviously, if you know, someone's got neck pain that seems to be provoking migraine, it makes sense to treat the neck pain in the ordinary way. But the neck pain isn't the cause of the migraine. The cause of the migraine is, is an intrinsic uh, susceptibility. Uh, and so, you know, that's, that's an important thing. But look, the other thing when talking about triggers, it's probably not quite so important when, you know, in ordinary clinical practice, but it, it's an interesting concept, one of the things that happens in migraine attacks is that there may be a prodrome. So there may be a change in the way the person feels even a day before the migraine attack occurs. It often is just feeling a bit lethargic, but it can include things like alteration in thirst, eating more, drinking more, and it can involve food cravings. One of the things that may be a trigger or may, may lead to the perception that foods are a trigger for migraine is that in fact, the day before a migraine, you crave chocolate, therefore you eat chocolate, then you get a headache the next day and you think, well, the chocolate's done it. But in fact, what's happened is the migraine has produced the, the craving for the chocolate in the first place. And uh, the, there's been quite a lot of debate and work about that. But uh, look, I, I think the thing is that there are undoubtedly many things that can trigger migraine in people who are prone to it. This health ed educational segment is supported by Beatrice. The views expressed by the experts are entirely their own. Speaking of which, um, if you do get migraines frequent enough, what's its impact on both uh, work and also uh, the psychological state of the person? Oh, there's no doubt that migraines are devastatingly disabling in many people. And I, I found myself 
saying earlier when I was talking to you uh, that you know we want to exclude more serious conditions. Well, that's true, but migraine itself can be a very serious condition for many patients, and particularly people who get very frequent migraines. So uh, you know a lot of the modern treatments that we are dealing with are for people who are getting migraine with you know full-blown migraine attacks several times a month and you know, background headaches probably uh, more days than not. Uh, and you know, for these people, it really is devastating in their ability to carry out their usual activities. Uh, and so th there's no doubt that a migraine is a very disabling condition, uh, particularly for this subgroup of people that get very frequent migraine. But I mean, even for people who are getting severe but occasional migraines, if it occurs at the wrong time, uh, it's it's a great nuisance to them and, and uh, you know, clearly needs to be dealt with. Well, let's take that patient with the typical migraine, um, Richard, and then move to it looking at what GPs can do for him uh, in, in a couple of scenarios. The first one is the severe episodic migraine. And then later on, we can talk about this man but with the more frequent migraines, say three, four episodes a month, so how will you approach, first of all, the case with the severe episodic? Okay, so, well, severe episodic migraine, I think you know, we, we need to have effective acute treatment. Mm -hmm. And so that it's a matter of looking at the sorts of treatment that might be available uh, as uh, acute therapies. We, we tend to rely very heavily on triptans. Uh, you know, the triptans are... Uh, extremely effective for many people with migraine. I, I think, you know, when I first started dealing with patients with migraine, the triptans were probably in their early days and people were a bit suspicious of them and, mm -hmm. and they were not widely used uh, as much as they should be. I think they are more widely used now, but I, the, the things that I tend to see in my practice with patients who are being, I guess, undertreated uh, with regard to triptans, they may have been tried on one. Uh, often they're tried on sumatriptan because it was out earliest and everyone feels familiar with it. Now, sumatriptan can be a very effective drug, but for some patients it's not well absorbed. And in those patients, there are other members of the family that may be better absorbed. For some people, they, they get side effects from it. They feel sort of knocked about, lethargic or a bit achy with it. Uh, so there are other triptans that one can choose that have a, a lower side effect profile. So basically, I would certainly be treating your patient with a triptan first up. And depending on the circumstances, I might be choosing one of the, I guess, more potent triptans. So in, in my experience, I think uh, elitriptan and zolmitriptan tend to be highly effective and, and you know, reliably work well. If he's someone who's previously tried sumatriptan and found that it gave him some unpleasant side effects, I'd be looking for one of the gentler triptans and probably the best in that regard is naratriptan, which really has a, a side effect profile that's not much different from placebo. So most patients will tolerate naratriptan very well. So I think first thing is, you know, find a, a good triptan for him and it may be a matter of trial and error and just find what suits him best. People who get nausea early on, there's a wafer, the uh, risotriptan wafer, and Imigran is a nasal spray, sumatriptan nasal spray. So there, there are options for, for most people. Anti-inflammatories are undoubtedly effective for 
acute treatment of migraine, so things like naproxen and ibuprofen and all of the standard anti-inflammatories. And in fact, they work nicely with the triptan, synergistically, in fact, so that uh, in Europe, in fact, there, there is now a combined medication, which I think is sumatriptan and naproxen together in one tablet. We don't need them to be in one tablet. We can prescribe them as separate things, but it, it certainly is a way of getting some additional benefit. Some patients with uh, migraine do get prominent nausea, so anti-nausea medication is helpful in that situation. It's traditionally been metoclopramide or prochlorperazine, so maxillin or stemetal. But I have to say that I do sometimes use domperidone, which can be quite helpful in these situations, but also Zofran, which mm -hmm. of course you know used to be very expensive, but is these days much more affordable. It's, it's not a PBS indication for it, but it can be useful in migraine. The other thing that uh, some of these agents may do, I guess probably metoclopramide particularly, is that it is prokinetic. And one of the features of a migraine attack is that you do tend to get pylorospasm. Mm -hmm. So if you take medication too late into a migraine attack, it tends to sit in the stomach and not go anywhere. Uh, so taking something that will help uh, medication to get through the stomach uh, is advantageous as well. And of course, you know, things like aspirin, can be highly effective too if taken early. So, you know, often with my patients, I, I, they have a, a sort of a, a staged approach. They might take, you know, three aspirin as the very first sign. And, you know, the aspirin that dissolves in the mouth and gets absorbed from there is a very handy thing to have in your pocket. You can take it in the train or in the tram or while you're driving. Uh, if you feel a migraine coming on then, you can get that in early. And that is really key early treatment, but in reserve, have a triptan thereafter. So I've talked about a lot of different strategies that we can talk about, but, you know, triptans are the key, but then there are other things that help them and you might use other things to get in early as well. Would you like to touch on them now, Richard? So the early, early treatments, I mean, all migraine treatments for acute migraine work better if they're taken earlier in the attack. So one thing that we're that patients often don't want to do is to take a triptan too early mm -hmm. for a couple of reasons. First is for people who are getting very frequent migraines, we don't want them to get into a situation of medication overuse. Mm -hmm. And you know, the sort of the limit on triptans is said to be about 10 days a month. Someone who's getting one attack a month, they can they don't need to worry about that. Mm -hmm. Someone who's getting frequent attacks, they do need to be a bit cautious about that. And the other thing is that some patients do find that triptans make them feel a bit washed out. And mm -hmm. if you can treat a, an attack with, for example, aspirin and not need a triptan, it may leave you feeling a bit better. So often, you know, the, 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 the first sign that you know you're getting an attack, you might take aspirin. The first sign that you know it's getting out of hand, you take a triptan. But patients actually get very good at this. They recognise their own attacks and you know, they, they know when the, the things are about to get out of hand. Where do we stand these days with prophylaxis? So look, uh, we, we've got a lot more options than we had 10 years ago. Uh, we've, got, we've got a large number of oral prophylactic agents uh, and really the art of medicine in a way is choosing the right one for the right patient. So I'm sure everyone will be familiar with things like Sandomigran, Pisotifen, 
uh, with propranolol, with amitriptyline. These have been around for a long time as migraine prophylaxis, and they all work for a proportion of patients. Mm -hmm. The problem with all of these is that they've got their own sets of side effects. Mm -hmm. So with pisotophan, people tend to have increased appetite. So if you've got someone who's been struggling with their weight, they really won't thank you for being put on that. Someone who's got asthma, you're not going to want to give them a beta blocker. Uh, amitriptyline is probably better tolerated by many, but again, some people find it makes them hungry and there are difficulties with that. So again, you need to know your patient and see which of these would be suitable for them. There are a couple of newer oral preventives that I think many GPs do know about now, but some may not. Topiramate, Topamax has been around for you know, over 10 years now. It's a bit fiddly to use. It does have a series of side effects that people can get, but if you build it up gradually, it, it, it is often well tolerated, and it probably is a little bit more effective than some of uh, the other standard ones. One that I really like is Candesartan, Atacand. Mm -hmm. um, that's been around, of course, for a long time as a blood pressure tablet, but it wasn't recognized until relatively recently that it's highly effective as a migraine preventive treatment. You need to get the dose up to about 16 milligrams a day. But uh, even with that dose, most people tolerate it pretty well. Uh, even people who start off with normal blood pressure you know, seem to be able to tolerate that pretty well. So there's this sort of range of oral mm. medications that we can work our way through. We're, we're now blessed uh, in, in having some things to fall back on, which are really reserved for people who are getting very frequent migraine. Uh, so the, there's a, a term that sort of come into play called chronic migraine, which is defined as headache more than 15 days a month with features of migraine at least eight days a month. Mm -hmm. uh, patients with chronic migraine eligible for treatment with uh, the CGRP antibodies or with Botox, which are these sort of modern treatments for as migraine prophylaxis. To qualify for them on the PBS, they need to have been tried on at least three standard preventive treatments uh, already. And you know they need to do a proper headache diary and make sure that uh, they meet the criteria. The CGRP antibodies are a once a month subcutaneous injection that the patient uh, does by themselves. Uh, the two that are PBS approved at present are Emgality and Viepti, uh, and uh, Ajovi, I'm sorry, uh, Emgality and Ajovi. There is another one that is TGA approved uh, and available, but not yet PBS listed, which is an infusion, a once every three months infusion, uh, and that's Viepti. Uh, so the, they're things that we can use for migraine prophylaxis and can be highly effective even in people where standard preventive treatments have not been useful. The other one that we do use a fair bit is uh, Botox. You know, it became clear 10 or more years ago that Botox is highly effective for treating chronic migraine. Uh, it needs to be injected by uh, a neurologist uh, who's uh, trained in doing it. Uh, it, it's a once every three month set of injections uh, and uh, that can be highly effective as well. So, you know, we, we, we have, I guess, a hierarchy of treatments. We've got the simple oral preventives and then we've got these higher tech and uh, I, say, I must say more expensive treatments, 
the government's been good about it. They've approved them, but they do make us tick a few boxes to get patients approved for them. Richard, with new medications and for the GPs who have not used these sorts of newer medications, there is, of course, a steep learning curve. Um, do you suggest that we either uh, do a trial and error or at least start off by referring uh, to the neurologist and learn uh, as we go? Sure. So, look, the, I think, you know, the oral preventives are easy to use. Mm. The injected ones, for the patient to get PBS funding, they do need to be prescribed initially by mm -hmm. a neurologist. Mm -hmm. So they will need to be referred into a neurologist. The CGRP antibodies, once they've been started and once the neurologist has identified that the patient responds, so typically we give them a three-month initial prescription, they come back in three months. If they've been a responder, their headache days have reduced by half, they're mm -hmm. able to continue with that mm -hmm. uh, and the neurologist would then write a prescription for the next six months. Prescriptions thereafter can be written by the GP but the patient does need still to be under ongoing review by the neurologist. So probably the scenario for most of these patients would be that they would see the neurologist maybe once a year uh, and see the GP for the, for the intervening prescription at, at six months. Uh, for Botox injection, it has to be done by a neurologist. Where do they put the Botox? So the, there's, a, a, I guess, a grid, if you like, 31 different spots around the scalp. They're really designed to be over the main branches of sensory nerves. That's so as you probably know, Botox gets into motor nerves and, and prevents muscle activation, but it's affecting migraine. It's almost certainly working by getting into sensory nerves and it stops them from releasing various neurochemicals, things like CGRP. And that seems to be how it's working in, in uh, in, cause, in, in helping migraine. So the areas we target are where the main sensory nerves are. So in the forehead, where we're getting the supraorbital and supratrochlear nerve, in the temporal region, where we're getting the temporal nerves, at the back of the head, where there are occipital nerves going mm -hmm. up to the brain. So there's a, a, a grid of different spots, but the, the standard protocol is 31 sites. Let's just say that my patient's receiving one of the other injectables. What should I, as a GP, be looking out for, monitoring and keeping an eye on? Okay, so look, it's, it's a very good question. The CGRP antibodies are relatively new. They really don't seem to carry any very frequent side effects. The commonest thing probably is a bit of constipation which is usually very easy to manage just with standard treatment. Some of the patient websites refer to weight gain with them, mm -hmm. uh, and that's a little bit controversial. Some patients really do feel that they cause weight gain, but having said that, the trials that were done, they actually measured weight, and the weight didn't seem to be any different in the placebo group versus the treatment group. So how much of a... a Real problem that is, I don't know, but it's certainly something that patients seem to be tuned into. So I would be, uh, I think it's important to be aware of that. CGRP does theoretically have some impact on blood vessel reactivity. So you might think that blocking CGRP might put patients at risk of getting vasospasm or increased blood pressure. That 
doesn't seem to be a big issue. And there has been a lot of interest in sort of post-marketing information about cardiac problems. It really doesn't seem to be a big problem. So I guess we'd still be a little bit nervous about giving them to someone who had active coronary disease, for example, but it probably isn't a huge problem. There have been some anecdotal reports about patients with inflammatory disorders getting a bit of a flare-up, so patients with psoriasis. Uh, but again, if, if that happens, it must be very rare indeed. So I think, by and large, it's really a matter of ask the patient if they're going okay, and uh, there's not uh, a lot of actual formal uh, monitoring that's required. Well, that's nice and easy. Very briefly, how does Kembisartan work? Oh, look, it's, uh, it's an angiotensin II inhibitor, as you know. Uh, the, the receptors are pri primarily uh, peripheral, but there are some receptors in, in the nervous system as well. So it's presumably having an impact on those receptors you know, it, it, it's one of the strange things about migraine treatment, migraine prophylaxis, until we had the sort of CGRP antibodies, all of the prophylactic agents really come from different angles. They've got anticonvulsants, you've got blood pressure tablets that are beta blockers, blood pressure tablets that are A2 inhibitors, uh, and they're all coming from different angles and they all seem to work. And it's almost as though perhaps some patients have some triggers that are I guess, bombarding their migraine trigger zone, if there is such a thing, uh, more than others. Uh, and for different patients, it's different ones. So you, it does seem to be that, you know, there are some patients where one of these preventive treatments works really well and other patients where it might be another that works really well. But uh, look, candesartan does pragmatically work well uh, and uh, it does have the advantage that it's well tolerated. And it's a drug we know well as GPs. Correct, correct. Richard, thank you for taking us through this step-by-step, -step, uh, if you like, management of migraines. I just wonder if you have some key and final messages to our GP listeners. Okay, look, I, I think probably the big message is that migraines are good diagnosis to make. If you do diagnose migraine, you know, we've got a lot of treatment options available to us now. And really, you know, people tend to sort of feel dis, disenchanted sometimes by, you know, people's response to, to headache treatments. But these days, it, it's the other way around. The patients that I have that are most grateful are patients who have been struggling with migraine for a long time. And, you know, we've now got good treatments to, to, to treat them. So I think that there's reason for optimism. Uh, migraines, as I said, a good thing to diagnose. Uh, and, you know, we've got treatments, some of which are simple and straightforward, some of which are a bit more complex. But, you know, we can really do something for most patients with migraine, even, you know, the, the, the most uh, difficult uh, of patients, uh, you know, that, that come to see us. Last question about referrals to neurologists. Do we just refer to any neurologists or are there particularly neurologists with interests in migraines? So the, the, there are certainly neurologists that have got a particular interest in migraine. Uh, I mean, all neurologists should be capable of managing patients with migraine, but I think it is fair to say that some do so with more enthusiasm than others. Uh, I'm, in fact, just the immediate past president of the Australian New Zealand Headache Society. It's uh, a society that's made up largely of neurologists, but some other pain specialists as well. Uh, and we do have a website, 
that are uh, available, uh, ANZHS. Uh, so if you Google that, you'll, you'll get to the website and, and there are some resources there, uh, which uh, include, I think, uh, the list, uh, a list of people who have said that they're willing to put their hands up as uh, so that they have an interest in, in treating headache. Uh, the other thing that, if I can give it a plug, that uh, there are some quite good resources, things like headache diaries, uh, that patients find very helpful on, on that as well. If you just Google ANZHS headache uh, and you'll get to it. Well, thank you very much, Richard. It's uh, been really helpful to us. Okay, no, it's a pleasure. I'm always delighted to talk about treatment of migraine because I think it is still something that uh, the, the, there's a large number of people there that are suffering that uh, really uh, are not putting themselves forward often to go and see the GP. You know, it's a common story that people say, look, it's migraine, my mother had it, I've got it, you know, it's my burden in life. And they really take a very negative view that, you know, nothing can be done. But uh, we, we do have things we can do. And, uh, you know, we really encourage people to be treated and, and uh, take advantage of the advances that we've, uh, we've made. Well, that's a great message to end on. And once again, thank you, Richard. Okay, terrific. Thanks, David. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast, where you can always catch a high-quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high-quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.